Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. I have been in the food industry in Europe and in the U.S. for more than 20 years now. And every other week, I interview trendy chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secret behind the scenes and to understand which ingredients and new flavors they are experimenting with. If you are new to this podcast, my guest last week was Chef Alison Trent from Isabel and Laurel Hardware in West Hollywood, Los Angeles. You can find all the information about the episodes of this podcast on the website flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. To make sure they are not missing any upcoming episode, please subscribe to the podcast on any phone podcast app. It was Anthony Bourdain that inspired the guest that I have on the show today when he was 17 years old and he was watching an episode of No Reservations. His name? Chef Johnny Sparrow from the restaurant Reverie in Washington, D.C. This guy has a tremendous mental database of flavors that he has experimenting during his multiple travels in Denmark, Spain, and Asia. His mentors, he has famous ones like René Redzepi, Jose Andres, and John Shields. They all have motivated him to go beyond the obvious and discover his own style. Hi, Chef. Uh, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, good morning and uh, welcome to uh, Flavors Unknown. I'm, I'm really uh, delighted to, to have you on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to start my day like this. So you are part in 2018 of the Netflix culinary competition called The Final Table. So how was that experience? I'm, I'm curious. It was interesting. I, I think as a young cook, I, I remember watching like the first couple seasons of, of Top Chef. And I think I kind of told myself that would never really be something that I'd I'd want to do. Not because, I just didn't think it always kind of represented what a chef could actually do when you only have like 15 minutes to make, make something in a mystery basket. Does that really represent, you know, the voice of the restaurant and your training, you know, years and years of spending time in these kitchens and you literally have 15 minutes and a pile of randomly assorted ingredients to put together your voice. But when, you know, I, I got just really recently got back from Spain and I was working on the restaurant at the point that the, they reached out to ask if I wanted to be a part of this. So I didn't have the kitchen yet. Like we just submitted permits. And I think my, my mentality kind of switched just from the conversation they had because it seemed like it was more of an opportunity for me to talk about myself and talk about what I wanted, what I wanted the restaurant to be as it was getting ready to get open. And more than anything, it was an opportunity for me to get out there before the restaurant even, you know, was completed to, so people knew who I was, like who I was and what I was about. And, I also had a feeling it was going to come out the same time the restaurant opened. We'd get roughly around the same time. Like, uh, it actually took like a full year for it to come out. So it was a couple of things that kind of factored into that decision. I, I wanted to make sure that, I mean, I know how hard it is to stay relevant, to stay, you know, in the, in the public eye as, you know, being, you know, with all the new restaurants that open up every day, 
it was an incredible experience. It was different than most where it's not an individual cooking. It's somebody you're cooking with like a partner. And my friend Jess, who was one of my best friends, I was actually her boss for a brief period of time in DC. And then she moved to Spain to stage in Muguritz and then just never came home. I had just recently left. I had left Minibar and then went and staged in Muguritz and we kind of reconnected. We always stayed friends. But as soon as the producers were asking, you know, who would you want to cook with in a kitchen? And I tried to think of somebody that was very like-minded and wanted to have a good time. Okay. And you're still friend now after the competition? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, we, we talked. We're like, listen, like, whatever happens, like, we are, it's, we're friends. It's, I, want the, I want us to represent who we are as people, not who people, like, don't, I don't want them to try to put together this idea that we're like these, we're something different than what we end up being on TV. So I was like, let's, let's have fun. Let's be ourselves. And that's it. So, I mean, we... We didn't want to, you know, get involved in any kind of drama. Not to say there any there was any drama, but I would like to just represent ourselves. Let's put our two cooking styles together because they were very different. Although she had spent time in Mugaritz, which had, you know, been an inspiration to me for the majority of my career, she had helped Andoni open up a restaurant that was, you know, more South American ingredients from the Basque country. So she was doing tortillas and more of those kind of flavors. Whereas I'm still very kind of like not modernist, but kind of taking influences from elsewhere. It's just very different techniques, but it was cool to see us kind of come together and put those in. Yeah, because you had to execute like a, a dish from different parts of the world, correct? Yeah, so it was dishes from different parts of the world and it had to be, the both of us had to come together with a singular idea and execute it. And, you know, some, some of the teams would let one person take the lead and they would make the dish and the other person would just kind of be like a sous chef. But we kind of took it as a you know, it's an experience for us to learn how, like, let's say we were, we were running a kitchen together, two very different styles. Like, how would we, how would we do this? And especially like when the first challenge was Mexico, she was making tortillas every single day in the kitchen, but like, how do we do it where it's still a little bit of me put into there? So I think that was the most fun. It was nice to kind of step. I think one of my, one of the things, and it's probably like a, a ongoing theme in my career is do things that make you uncomfortable. And it was just, yeah, putting us in a situation where it may not be a food or something that we're familiar with take inspiration from these different countries and put it together into a one cohesive idea with somebody else rather than me just doing it myself and having like my singular idea. So it's, it was challenging and, and fun. And I would say, I don't think I could do it now with the restaurant, the baby, but it was definitely, it was, it was a great experience. It's gotten us a lot of exposure. We didn't, we didn't do it for, for ego or to like tell everybody that, you know, I'm the world's greatest chef. Cause I mean, it's TV and it, it is what it is. And it's, it was a good experience for us to meet people and network, but. Not to say I forgot about it or like I blocked it out, but just happened so quickly that I'm like, oh yeah, we're, I'm on Netflix. Like the entire world can see what I'm doing. <laughs> Did it add um, a real positive uh, impact on uh, your, your image and your popularity the way you expected for the restaurant? I think so. I, I think one of the biggest things when we talk about the vision of the restaurant, like obviously there's the culinary side and the, the direction we want to go in there. But one of the things that's really important to me is the culture that we've created. And I think the show represented like, who I am as a person. Like, I am a happy-go-lucky guy. I mean, obviously, I take food seriously, but not myself. And I, I think everyone was always... Every, every person that came in, they're like, you just seemed like you were just really genuine and, and happy to be there. And it was, it was good. So I, I think it definitely... The voice that I have now at the restaurant that we've established over the past couple months was definitely definitely represented on there. Like, I'm not a, I was not a different person in front of a camera. I, I wanted to make sure that was also the case as well. Like, my message was consistent, whether there's a camera in front of me or it's just me talking to a, you know, a friend or a guest in the kitchen. Like I shouldn't change who I am depending on the audience. It should always be the same voice. So I think a lot of people come in and that's like, they're like, Hey, we had no idea what this restaurant was because I'm in Georgetown in Washington, DC down a historic alleyway 
they're like, but we saw you on the final table. So for people that would have had no idea, I mean, they, maybe they're not, they don't go out to eat as often, or maybe they have like their, you know, their favorite neighborhood restaurant. They're like, we didn't realize that there was a chef from DC representing, you know, the United States in a world competition. You know, all these international dishes and so on was great, like an up your up your alley because you know travel has um, really had a big impact on who you are, the chef today. I mean, you have been everywhere, almost around the world. You know, you've been to Denmark, to Vietnam, to Singapore. You know, Cambodia, Japan, Spain. I think like the first time you and I met, you were just coming back from from Spain, if I remember. I think I was home for maybe like a week. <laughs> I came to I yeah, like exactly, yeah. exactly. I remember that. So what or whom, you know, influenced you to, you know, pack your bag and, uh, and, and become this uh, globe uh, trotter, like, you know, around the planet? I was thinking about what was the thing that got me, like, got that bug, like, crawled underneath me and told me to just to get out and see the world. And I think a lot of it was, you know, I grew up in a really small town in Baltimore County. I, there was like a buffalo farm next door. I didn't really have a lot of culture. Like the first restaurant I ever worked in was just like this casual American bistro in like, there was a tiny little shopping center up the street. The garden supply store, a Safeway, a drugstore, and this restaurant. And I didn't really, I didn't really know anything outside of, you know, what I assume would be like these classic American dishes. And I think as I got a little bit older, I just, I got like a little, a little glimpse in what the outside world had. And I just kind of took it upon myself to like, listen, like there's, the world's a bigger place than, than Phoenix, Maryland. At the end, food, I mean, more than anything, food's the one that kind of influenced me and showed me that, showed me that, like I, at an early age when I started realizing what, you know, real Japanese cuisine was when it wasn't, you know, cucumber, you know, cucumber, California rolls. Because I mean, back when I started cooking, the internet wasn't, wasn't what it is now. There was no Flickr. There was no Instagram. There weren't like a million blogs that I had access to. So I was kind of, I left my own devices to kind of like find these, these moments of inspiration. They just kind of pop up randomly. And I think the biggest one is actually like Anthony Bourdain, which is crazy to think. I mean, it's, I was at a point in my career where I mean, not my career. I just started. I was in, I'd worked in these restaurants throughout Baltimore County and I thought I knew everything. I'm like, okay, great. I can work the meat station. I can work salad station. I can take frozen desserts out of a box and put on a plate. What else is there to do? I was, I mean, I was 17, but I was looking to go to culinary school and there was an episode that had, and I just kind of recently stumbled on Anthony Bourdain as well. I mean, again, I, I hadn't really, didn't really know too much about the outside culinary world. And there was the episode where he basically does like the entire hour dedicated to El Bouli that like, completely just blew my mind i had no idea it, it changed i mean i can i can say like that was the point that probably probably started me in this path of where i am now as far as like stylistically the food that i've always been attracted to but also just looking at this chef who turned what i when i thought food was just meant you know, for sustenance and turned it into an experience and realized you know i want that i'd always been like a very artistic kid and one point i considered going to art school and i never did well in school I'm sure this is like a pretty common, it's a pretty common running theme with most chefs that the school system just didn't work for most of us and we didn't work inside of it. And uh, I had an interest outside of that. I mean, I loved, I loved to draw and I thought I was going to be like a graphic designer, and, but something about food just kept bringing me back in. It was like the only place I felt really comfortable and had taken more of my attention than anything else. When I saw this episode about Anthony Bourdain traveling to, you know, Rose's Spain. And was it like a part, part unknown? That, at that time already? No, it wasn't. Because I was, let's see, this was 2006, I think. 2000, oh, yeah. 2005, 2006. So it was still, uh, was it No Reservations? I think it might have been No Reservations at that point. Yeah. And I saw the, the influence of Japan and all these different things that had kind of shaped his cuisine. And I was like, oh, my food can be, although like most people tell you food is a craft. 
I mean, I, I, I can be both, but it's like there's a lot of artistic interpretation on a lot of stuff, and that's what drew me in. I mean, it's it, it was like the plates were things that I'd never seen before. I mean, just the actual plates and the dishes they were serving. So I think I that's why I was like, okay, I need to get out of you know this kind of suburban area and go into a city and just start working. And I uh, I remember when I I mean, I was so living so close to DC and it was like the biggest city that I lived by. I was like, okay, well, I need to go to DC. My brother was going to art school close by. So I just kind of packed up and came to DC. And I remember I had like my list of like the top, I found the top 10 restaurants in DC. I'm like one of those being, you know, mini bar by Hills and Andres. I'm like, well, there's no way I'm going to be able to go work at mini bar. So let me start somewhere else on that list. And uh, I started working for this, the chef, his name's Maru. He had a, a restaurant called Fair Olivia and he was from the Ivory Coast. And he was very, very much inspired by some of the similar things as well. Like he loved WD50 was like one of the, also like one of those restaurants. So just kind of like, and I couldn't get enough of like trying to figure out how he did everything. And Maru kind of showed me a lot of stuff. I mean, again, like Ivory Coast, like I had never had a jar of bread or prepare spice. And he showed me a lot of different ingredients. And I just kept building like this database of the flavor, but also like this desire to see more. And yeah, he just let me kind of create whatever I wanted. I got to do, I mean, I was 21 at that point and I was doing, I had, I got to do like an amused bouche for every guest that came in for essentially like anything I wanted. He gave me free reign to explore and kind of find, find what I wanted to do. And it was super satisfying. But I also at that point realized I had no idea what I was doing. I was, I was trying to kind of create in the voice, like somebody else's voice, essentially, like looking at, you know, a bully and Albert Adria. I didn't understand how to make the technique like work, but I didn't understand why it worked. So I kind of started to push my way around a little bit. So I, I left that restaurant. I went to go work at this restaurant called Comey here in DC. And that, I mean, every, every chef has kind of pushed me to go in a different direction. And that restaurant pushed me to, uh, I started doing, I was the pastry chef for the last year. And I was like absolutely obsessed with Jordan Kahn and, and Albert Adria. And that's when he had his book Natura come out. Like I, everything, all oh, my mind just kept slipping back to like this modern Spanish cooking. I just, I realized like as much as I love DC, there's a big world out there. And that was the first time I'd ever actually traveled to Europe was to go stage at Noma, which I think at that time, I don't think, I don't think it, I think it might, it was on the, it was, on, it was not as popular today. Definitely, it was, yeah, it was definitely like, it was up there, but it wasn't, I don't think Rene Redzepi was a household name at that point. But I, I remember I sent an email and I just like, I'm like, this isn't going to work. I, I'm like, there's a million people like me in the world. Why would a restaurant like that say, yes, come stage here? Uh, I sent an email just because I'm like, let's, let's see what they have to say. Two days later, I get an email back on my phone and like just like lost it. Like I had no idea. I'm like, oh, oh I'm like I guess I have to sell everything I have to get a plane ticket and go to <laughs> go to go go to Copenhagen now. <laughs> wow. It was and that so that was like my real first experience traveling. I mean I I obviously I'd I'd traveled around the United States with my family as a kid, but never had I traveled internationally for you know outside for, of the country. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first the first one and that I mean from there obviously it went all over the place. But you got the bug after that. <laughs> yeah, it was like, okay, food can food can take you to a million different places around the world and it can get you in the door where, where it normally couldn't. Like at that point, I didn't need a visa. So I was able to go work. I was I went to Copenhagen for like two months and, you know, I staged and then, uh, and I, I had all the intention of just staying there for the rest of my life because I found, I was, in the, I was in Copenhagen in the middle of like January and February, like dead of their winter. And I loved every moment of it. I, uh, I was like, oh, I just, I want to stay here. I want to be here. And, Money goes quick when you're a stage and you don't have any, you don't have any saved up. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't have like a trust fund I could pull money out of. I just spent the money. I actually had to borrow a little bit of money from my sister. Then I came home from that moment on, like nothing was ever going to be good enough. 
Noma had changed my entire, again, another moment in time where just like, I was like, okay, I need to be much more vigilant on where, like knowing the ingredients that we were, that we're using, where were they getting from, what we have in this area. I just kept pushing me. Like I just kept seeing these new new things, like where I was used to like seeing prepackaged steaks and vegetables coming frozen to like going there where it's this forager drops a bag off of like the most beautiful sorrel. And you have like, it's just like the, the quality of ingredients, like the langoustines coming right off the boat that day. And it just pushed me. And I came back to DC, like so incredibly lost. I didn't know what I was going to do because there was at that time, like I didn't see anybody doing anything like that. So that's when I actually, I bounced around DC a little bit, still just lost, like no idea where I was going to go. And I actually, I moved to not the most exotic place in the world, but I think probably in my opinion, the most, one of the most influential restaurants in the United States at the time, I've moved down to Chilhowee, Virginia to work with who I consider to be like my, my culinary mentor and also my best friend, John Shields. He had a restaurant down there called Townhouse and now he's in Chicago and he's got a, a two Michelin star restaurant called, uh, uh, Smith. So that's where, when I met him, I found like another guy that was equally as obsessed with like Eats and just textures and ingredients and ego foraging. And that was again, like a, just another moment in time where I, like when I could just nerd out about travel and all this international influences, because I felt like I didn't have a lot of people like close by that I, not to say I didn't have any other passions outside of the kitchen, but I think I had basically set everything, put everything on the back burner. I'm like, okay, my entire life is about cooking and reading books. Like I, I remember I asked my parents for the Fat Duck cookbook when it first came out for Christmas. And they were like, you want to be like, you want a book for Christmas? I was like, yeah. Like, as, <laughs> uh, so, so John Shields is, I, I would say like, I mean, I, I have a lot of, I think I have a lot of mentors and people that have shaped me today, but if I could say like, there was one that really kind of helped me focus on stylistically, like who I wanted to be, not like not mimicking him in any way, but helping me find my voice and pushing me to, to be better as was him. I mean, working at a townhouse, I think we were doing some of the most creative food in the States and we were in the middle of Virginia inside of a state park. And it was just wildly crazy stuff. We had no, there was no limitation on what we could do. And he definitely taught me a lot, but that again, pushed me to go see more of the world. So we closed for a month to go on vacation. And that's when I went and did like my whole, my whole Asia tour. So I started in Singapore, then went to Vietnam, Cambodia, and Japan. And again, places that always kind of influenced me. Like I loved like Bun and Pho because I had a lot of Vietnamese friends here in Virginia. And I was like, let's just go see what it's like in Vietnam. Rather than just, I think I, it's kind of my thing. Like I, I have a ton of cookbooks and I like using them as like, they're great for inspiration, but there's something about actually going to the place where they're created and like where those ingredients are and experience it firsthand. Like clearly I didn't do well in school. So books don't teach me firsthand experience does. So they kind of pushed me, they showed me where I wanted to go and I just kind of followed them there. So that's what kind of took me. I mean, Japan was amazing and going to Skiji market at three o'clock in the morning and seeing all these ingredients and pushing me. I just, I feel like there's, even now, like as we're having this conversation, I'm trying to think where, where, where else do I want to go? That because I could just repeat all the cool places I've been, and I'm like, where should I go now? I mean, I have a wife and a daughter, so it clearly changes things. But yeah, that's uh, yeah, exactly yeah. Because <laughs> I can't just you know go crash on somebody's sofa and just work for free and have a free place to stay. But because that's food, kind of helped me do that. Like I traveled the world because, and I didn't, I don't make, didn't make a lot of money, and I didn't have a lot about like other resources. But food made it much more. I knew I always could go find work or I always could have a place to stay. Now, when you're, when you're looking back uh, and thinking about like uh, all those uh, young generation of, uh, 
of uh, individuals, you know, men and women that are interesting into interested in this business. I mean, will you recommend this uh, first uh, hand experience and pack your bag and travel and and discover, you know, all those different traditions and uh, you know cultural influences and food versus you know going into like um, a, a culinary school where maybe sometimes you have to uh, take loans and uh, you know and after that. Uh, spend a part of your life, um, you know, paying those loans back? I mean, yeah, I would say, like, it kind of depends on, I mean, I know there's there's a lot of different people that try to get into the, like, the industry. Like, there's people that just think that it's the only place for them because they, they have no other place to go because I feel like the industry was oftentimes thought of, like, a place for, like, these, like, social refugees who didn't want to go have an education and just, like, to party. And then there's the other side where it's, like, career changers who fell in love with food and they start cooking. And then, I mean, there's people just have always kind of loved it. So it's, I think it really kind of depends on what your what your background is. But if, when I look at a resume, I typically just get past anything that has to do with your education. I understand that I understand people look at it to make sure that you're like it shows a level of commitment. Like a lot of schools, like whether it's like CIA or things like that, like you definitely get like a good baseline education and skill set. But if I'm looking at a cook who I want to come work at my restaurant, and we only have I mean my entire team, entire restaurant, including dishwashers server assistants, everything is probably like 14 or 15 people. The kitchen's a, it's a pretty small team, but the thing that's most important is that I look at people that want to be at the restaurant, but also have like a desire to learn and push. And I feel like firsthand experience for most people is, and I, I think especially in the kitchen is probably the most important. I mean, you can, you can read a book on how to, how to broom while vegetables, but you're not going to learn how to do it until you actually physically touch it. And I, I think just being able to taste, like we, we, we have recipes in the restaurant, but for the most part, a lot of it is about tasting it and kind of like just feeling the food. And I think the only way you can ever do that is if you, if you get out there and just like taste the world and build this database, like this culinary database of flavors and textures and, you know, different temperatures. Like I think I was just always open. I always just said yes to eating everything. But the worst thing that's going to happen if you try some, you don't like it. Like that's it. You're not going to like it unless you have an allergic reaction. That's the worst case, but eating, you know, balut in Vietnam, like, you know, fertilized duck aids or durian, it's just like anything, like you need to need to taste and try as many things as you can, because that's the only way that you can have, like, you can have build a successful flavor combination is if you know, if you know something works, or you know, if it doesn't, it's only because you're know, trying it. So if, like when young cooks, one, if they're career changing, they're like, you know, we're thinking about going to culinary school, I always tell them to, uh, like, why don't you come stage with me for a week? And just get an idea of like, not to say we're like every kitchen, but get an idea of what it's actually like to work in a kitchen. And then you can decide if it's something you want to pursue. But also, if you, I think I always often tell them that I don't hire based on culinary school like papers. I hire on desire and passion. I would always push, not against, but the other way. Like if you have if you have money to like spend on school, take that money to travel and go stage different restaurants. Like that's that's the, I think that's the best way to do it. I mean, you get a, a, a different. Every kitchen's different. Every state's different. Every country they have so many different things to offer. So if you have, if you're willing to be in a little bit of debt. <laughs> I think I'd, I'd rather go eat at the restaurant to see the world than see a classroom. <laughs> yeah. So what would be your advice where to go now? Because, you know, at that time when you went into, you know, Denmark and Copenhagen, obviously, uh, you know, we went to Noma and became, you know, one of the uh, iconic restaurants, you know, on the planet. So, you know, nowadays, what would be your recommendation if you had to pick like three restaurants, you know, around the world or, you know, this young generation to go and stage at? Interesting. Let's see. I think a lot of, Young cooks obviously know what Noma is, and I, I look at what they're doing now, and it's it's so light years beyond what I ever like whatever assume. But I feel like uh, if you were to go anywhere in the world, let's say you go to Copenhagen, I love what 
Christian Puglisi is doing Eberle because it's very it's very ingredient focused. It's not wildly manipulated. It's just pure flavor. I had a meal there years ago, and I, I think most people know where Relay is now. And Jonathan was the chef there. Just I think being able to spend time in a restaurant like that where it's it's so ingredient driven and just what they do is just beautiful. And it's, they don't have a kitchen of like sixty people picking herbs. It's just it. I think it it's a it gives it would give you an opportunity to be very hands on. But I think I think Copenhagen. There's so many amazing restaurants there. Like you have 108, Geranium. Like the, I think it really kind of depends where you go. But I guess if I was looking at a list of the places that inspire me right now, because I never got to go to El Bulli, I would prop Spain. I mean, I went to I was in Basque Country, Spain for a year. But looking at other places that I would want to go in Spain alone is like Disutar in Barcelona and uh, Enigma. I think when you look at what Disutar does, you can see a lot of similar similarities to the way that El Bulli was, but it's a very different kind of st- stylistically a very different restaurant. And then uh, obviously like Albert Adria, who's like probably like one of the greatest chefs in the world with Enigma. Just lo- Enigma just looks like a- an incredible experience. And I think seeing different versions of what people consider to be a, a high-end dining experience is where like Enigma, like you move from room to room and it's like using the entire building as an experience. I, I think that would, that's, it gives people a different stand, like a different, different viewpoint on how you can do these like super, Kind of like modernist avant-garde restaurants, and very stylistically very different. And anywhere in Asia, maybe? Yeah, Hong Kong looks like it. I mean, Hong Kong just the more I, I like. I mean, I've been able to travel throughout most of most of Asia, but I've never been to Hong Kong. I kind of started looking into it a little more, and it it's just always seemed like it's just like I mean, one. I love seafood, so it seems like there's just an like an abundance of that in Hong Kong, like a lot of like shellfish. But I think Hong Kong would be a pretty cool place to go. I, I really enjoyed my time at Singapore. I think there's definitely a lot of like amazing restaurants in Singapore, but I think I'd, I want to go like, I think I, maybe Hong Kong. I think Hong Kong would be a pretty good place to like belong and eat, uh, going there. So Denmark, Spain, and, and Hong Kong. Yeah. Okay, cool. So obviously, you know, this travel experience, you know, found their way into like the, your food and, and even the space, you know, at your restaurant Reverie in, uh, in Washington, D.C., and I had the chance to um, to come to. Can you share with us some maybe specific examples and maybe unforgettable experiences that you had in in those countries that you went to? Yeah, and and how it translated maybe into you know the space and and some of the dishes and and reverie. The space itself, like even like food apart, like the space itself is very much inspired by just kind of classic and simplistic Scandinavian and Japanese design. It's very, I would say it's stark or cold, but we have a lot of natural elements like the, the concrete walls are still kind of exposed and the walls are even painted gray to kind of match that. And then there's like just small amounts of wood and just a lot of kind of natural textures. Just kind of that runs kind of rampant throughout most of the classic, the kind of very simplistic Japanese and Scandinavian design. But the food for, for the most part, I mean, we call it modern American because it kind of just means I can grasp it all my different inspirations and travels and kind of put together on a plate and no one questions if I'm doing Italian or French or, you know, Japanese, it's the restaurant's food stylistically is me. So you definitely see a lot of my, my travels and experiences put into a plate where it may not always be a direct dish that has kind of made its way onto the menu that I've seen elsewhere, but you can definitely see some of the, the nuances from the different places that I've been making on there. But like, for example, almost every Sunday when I was in San Sebastian, me and my friends would go eat at a restaurant called Bar Nestor. They have a very small menu. They serve chuleta, which is just the uh, ribeye of of a cow, uh, much older. It's like the Spanish beef is, is amazing. I mean, different 
you can obviously have much older cows in Spain than you can in the United States. The beef is very different, but there's chuleta and you just get, you know, Padron peppers, tomato salad, a couple different things. And it was just this after working at Mugritz every single day and then going out to dinner on Sunday night. And we all just sit down and we'd get like one or two steaks to split amongst eight of us, which was not like a ton of meat, but it was just like this, it was like this gathering of like just friends. You're completely white, but you get like reinvigorated around food. And so we have a dish on the menu kind of inspired by that where we're using American beef, which is a little bit younger, but we still cook it in that Spanish style where we temper it, sear it, and then cut right into it. And since it's not as old as the cows that they're getting in Spain, we add lardo on top of it. I just add a little bit more fat. And then the sauce that we put on it, rather than doing like a really heavily reduced meat sauce, it's actually uh, it's caramelized onions and seaweed, just reduced down with water and mirin over and over and over again until it's like this really nice viscous sauce. But it tastes super meaty and umami, but it is made as just seaweed and onions, and that just glazes the beef. And now that we're in the summertime, we can do, we have these beautiful heirloom tomatoes that go out with the, the dish as well as a uh, chanterelle, sauteed cherry vinegar, confit duck egg. And we looked at that the other day. I'm like, yeah, this is very much like a Basque inspired dish. Whereas I don't consider myself to be, you know, a Spanish chef in any way. And I, I, I keep saying that, I keep saying that to all my friends and they're like, well, then why do you have a like money Berico in your kitchen? Cause we have a money Berico that we serve to people. I think the places that I've been have always inspired the ingredients that I like, but. I think it was definitely, like, that dish definitely is inspired by the culture and the gathering of that, just like Basque cuisine kind of brings together. It's like meant to be shared and just like a really fond memory that I have. And then looking also at the menu, like there was a brief time where I was doing like a, tor- like a classic Spanish tortilla with uni, where I was taking something that I loved and ele- not, not even elevating, just adding a different ingredient. And then like Scandinavia flavor profiles, raw scallop with buttermilk and dill, which is like one of our signature dishes. Like a lot of the food that I had in Copenhagen, there's a lot of dill. Uh, that acidity for buttermilk and that just kind of translated in some of the flavor profiles that we use. But that's a dish that will, that's another dish that we'll always have on the menu. So when you're looking at um, creating like a new dish, uh, you know, for your menu, where, where the inspiration starts, you know, is it starting from the memory of, um, and, and, you know, some of the travel, um, you know, experiences that you had, did it start with, uh, with the produce and you combine those things together? I'm, I'm curious, what's the first step, you know, for you? I think it's definitely changed. Like when I was younger, it was definitely like flipping through cookbooks and looking at these dishes that people were doing and trying to, and I, I don't think it was authentically me. Like you, I think you read all these books and you think you have these ideas, but really it's kind of just drawn from, from other, other people who've already kind of created these dishes. But I think subconsciously you're making it think that it's your idea when it's really not. So when I'm thinking about dishes, like I, I try not to, you know, grab a cookbook off the wall and just look through it. It's kind of now it definitely starts with, as we definitely as we've evolved the restaurant too, it starts with a conversation with our farmers, our purveyors, about like whether it's seafood or vegetables that we have coming in. So it definitely starts with the ingredient now. There's a, a farm that's actually right next to where my parents still live in Baltimore County. And he reached out to me and he brought up brought a bunch of, you know, sun gold tomatoes and all these other different vegetables that he has. He grows a lot of like roast seven seeds from Dan Barber. He just gave me like these box of vegetables and we just took these vegetables and you we just cooked them every which way, ate them raw. And that's where the, that's where it starts getting the inspiration starts. Like, let's focus on highlighting these ingredients, not masking them and letting them kind of stand out. Uh, whereas like when I was younger, it was definitely like, let's do the coolest tech, like cool technique, cool technique. Like what's going to be like a showstopper? What's everyone going to stop and look at? Kind of realize that a lot of those techniques should be used to like elevate the dish, not be a showpiece. So 
it for me i like i kind of kind of flipped it around like where it's it starts with the ingredient and then the technique comes after that it's like what what is going to elevate this dish what's going to showcase this ingredient we can tell we don't necessarily have to tell a story about where it's from it can just kind of be delicious on a plate when you have you you want to celebrate this uh, you know great ingredient that you have how do you decide that this is i'm going to give like uh, you know because you're talking about modern american cuisine so I'm going to take like maybe like um, Nordic or European influence on it. So I'm going to have like an Asian, you know, twist on it and, um, you know, or, you know, something in French or, or whatever. How does it work? I think the way that I think about food now, the way that my the flavors have kind of come together is that it's less picking a particular country or flavor profile where it's like, this is going to be more of like a Japanese style. This could be French, I think, because I've kind of been like this. You know, say America is like a melting pot of culture. I think for most of us, as we, as we travel, like we've kind of melded these things together and you draw like certain techniques and flavors from all the different places. So now it's like, I'm going to choose, okay, this is going to be more kind of inspired by my trips to Scandinavia or something like this. It might just be a technique that I learned from there. Or like, for instance, like we, we started cooking a lot of our vegetables and, you know, shiokoji, like liquid shiokoji or using rice kojis and things like that. But they often get paired with other flavors that might be more associated with Scandinavia, like the scallop dish I mentioned earlier, like the scallops are dressed in shiokoji, yuzu, and finger limes, and then it gets a mixture of this buttermilk emulsion that's buttermilk that we make in-house with a poiss. I mean, we make butter in-house that we culture with a poiss, and then we use that buttermilk left over from the, uh, from the butter production to make this sauce. So already we have like Japanese, Scandinavia, and then French, French funky cheese. So I think for me, it's hard for me to really kind of just nail down, you know, what, where would I, like, visually, my, my, most people will probably say that my food looks like very, very Nordic, because that's what they can associate with that, the, what happened with the new Nordic movement, the way that, you know, kind of more natural or, or like new Spain, especially like Mugarich, it's like very inspired by nature. And I think that's, I think that's kind of true. Like, that's what our food is now, like, inspired by the ingredients. But I think I, I think I try to, and maybe it's an intentional thing that I, I try not to create stylistically so much from one, one place or another, I want it to be, I want it to be mine. And I, I think it draws just for who I am as a person. I've taken so much from other, other places and built this, like I keep talking about like this database. And I think I just use that as my, those are the like certain profiles work with different things. So where we might use like white soy miso for, you know, for a sauce, but there's, there's other ingredients that may not necessarily be associated with Japan. Like I think we just stopped thinking about how can we carpentalize carpe- or these, put these little ideas of boxes and have it fit perfectly inside of a st- like stylistically in the cuisine and let's just make it taste good. So it means using those ingredients and techniques that we've learned from elsewhere and just as long as it's cohesive and it doesn't seem like it's trying to recreate, you know, some some classic dish with like a spin on it. I think that's what we we try to we don't need to do like our take on something. I think we uh we try to be as authentic to what we can or who we are and just try to use those influences as a it adds to the dish rather than trying to just showcase, like, yes, this is a Japanese dish now. Before, there was something very interesting that you, you said when you were talking about cooking and you said, you know, it's more about artistic, like, interpretation versus, you know, being a craft. So I, I, can you um, explain to us what you, you meant by that? I think there's, a, there's been that argument, and people always talk about it, that cooking, it's not, it's not art, it's craft. Um, I mean, it's, you're cooking a piece of meat. But I feel like, you know, different levels of cuisines and different, just different restaurants, there's different approaches to that. And I feel like we've always kind of had 
an artistic side. I mean, there's definitely some chefs that like to, you know, paint on plates and do a little bit more than that. But I feel like for me, especially with the way that we, we cook food, that it has to, it's not just food on a plate. Like we're not just cutting a piece of meat, putting a blob of sauce on it and putting it out. I think it can kind of be an expression of how I see food and how I want it to be perceived. So whether it's the way we garnish it or the way that something, you know, something, how it's on the plate or just the plates themselves, it's given me a little bit more inspiration on like, most importantly, I make sure the food tastes good. And that, that's the, that's always, that always has to be number one. But after we get that, we're like, okay, how do we want to present this where it's created in our vision and people can look at it? Like we, we want people to be like, okay, that's a dish from every, like that makes, that's like we have our stylistically, we kind of have like our own, you know, a way of doing things. It starts off with, you know, with what we're plating on. So one of my, one of my best friends, Amber Kendrick, she has a company called Cloud Tear. I met her, you know, seven, eight years ago, and she designed most of the, the plates for Reverie. So she, she gave us the can, she gave us, we talked about it kind of always being like a canvas. And it's a, we've evolved and grown like stylistically. Like when we first designed plates together eight years ago, they were very different to what they are now. But we, we talk about, you know, the, the colors that I use when I cook. And it's not because I intentionally choose to cook with this. It's, they're usually dark and there's a lot of berries and a lot of kind of vibrant herbs and, finding a way to build a plate like if you put that on a black or green plate it's not gonna look the same but when you have it on this kind of matte a matte white plate that has a little bit of like an offset glaze and they're all a little bit different and it's you know that wabi-sabi where every plate's a little bit different and then you have your this beautiful vibrant dish on it it stands out like it's i think it's a, a choice that we make to find a way to i mean if we didn't care about how the food looked we'd be serving it in you know in cardboard boxes but i think it, it gives me a little opportunity to have like a little bit of finesse and it doesn't always change though it doesn't change the way the food tastes but i think it changes the way that it's perceived and and do you think about instagram now that the people you know play you know uploading um your dishes you know on instagram it's a part of your you know thinking process and creative process yeah i mean i think it's i mean the way that we built the restaurant too like you know working in a lot of restaurants younger when i was younger where they were dark and not well lit and he would take these terrible pictures of the food and post it and what for most people, like when they, before they go to a restaurant, like the experience starts way before they even step foot into it. Now it used to be, in my opinion, like when you would go on the website, you'd see the images that we posted and then you built, you, then you would make your reservation. That's where it started. But now, and you can hit the geotag on Instagram and see every single dish that I've done from the time that we have opened till now. And some of the pictures are pretty bad, but then you have the people that actually like take the time to like, to do it. And, I think originally, like growing up, you're like, just eat the food, just eat the food. But now, you know, it's an opportunity for an entire another audience to see what we do. So the restaurant's really well lit. It's not dark and moody. It's pretty vibrant. And yeah, when we, when we think about, when we look at the plates, it's not less like, how's this going to look on Instagram? It's like, make sure it's beautiful because if they do take a picture, they share it. We want it to represent who we are. If a hundred percent, like, unless you have like a no picture policy. You know that your picture is going to go on Instagram and social media, but it's also like, that's like social media is like a, it's a networking tool and that's what it should be used as. Like it's a, it's a, a, a place for us to share our ideas and our, like I post on Instagram constantly. It's, it's a picture of either my daughter, or my dog or food. <laughs> it's, uh, and it show it, it gives us an opportunity to kind of show the things that we're doing and it also just, it gets it out there so people can kind of see us. So a hundred percent, if, if I, I always think about, our social media presence because it's it's huge. I look at our G- I, well, and it's also helpful because if I there's not many times that I'm not at here for service, but I was like in Russia, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and I would look at the geotag and just see what the food looked like when I wasn't there. So it's 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 so I think about Instagram for a lot because it keeps me 
like if I for some reason I don't see it or I want to like see how it's being perceived when I'm not there, like or how it's being presented. So it's a good way for me to kind of kind of stalk my restaurant when I'm not around. Yeah, exactly. And then, and you know, you're talking about as well, you know, in the, in the past people, or I mean, still today, of course, looking at, you know, cookbook and sometimes for inspiration, but obviously, um, specific Instagram, um, you know, sites are going to um, play that role as well, you know, from restaurants where you can, you are going to be able to see now uh, in, uh, in most and uh, like very quickly, you know, what's, what's going on in all those places, you know, around the world. So that's, that's interesting. When I was younger, we didn't have that, and I felt like what we like the the way that information travels so much like faster now. Like it's it's changed our, it's changed the industry. I think it's probably changed a lot of industries. Like it's when you can get when you have like this instant gratification, being able to see a dish, get the recipe, and watch a video on it. It it changes like for me like the amount, like if I had that, who knows where I'd be in my career right now? I'm not saying I'd be farther ahead or maybe behind, but it's hard to say. But I feel like it's with that like it's. I can post something on Instagram, get like 200 likes, and then somebody comes in like, hey, we saw that dish you posted. It's just crazy how fast like an Instagram thing can, or somebody that who's like an influencer as they, you know, whatever they say, like if they post something about your restaurant, it changes. Like there, there's a return on investment on that kind of stuff. You can, you can see an increase in business for, you know, somebody posting something about your restaurants. It looks beautiful. They're going to want to try it. So it's, it's pretty, it's interesting. And if the people want to uh, follow you on all your restaurant on Instagram, I mean, they will have all the information on the the show notes, you know, from the podcast for this episode. So, um, oh, you know, they can go on uh, yeah, flavorsunknown.com and, and look on your episode page and they will have all that, that info. Talking about the name of your restaurant, so Reverie, which in French, you know, means kind of a a constant state of like dreaming, <laughs> correct? Yeah. So, uh, uh, so uh, w- why that name? Yeah, I mean that that was kind of it. I mean, looking at the definition of the word, yeah, daydream, like being pleasantly lost in your own thoughts. I was always kind of told that's kind of how I lived my life. I was always present, like physically, but my mind would always drift elsewhere. And being in a kitchen was the I think I mentioned before was the only thing that really kind of drew me in. Maybe pay attention gave me you know any kind of. I wasn't like a goldfish where I was just like three seconds everywhere else. Like I was just focused. It's like two parts. It's the thing that kind of food drew me in and kind of from a daydreamer to kind of focus that. But also the the restaurant itself is kind of meant to be kind of like that. Like you've been here. So, you know, you walk down the alleyway. It's kind of like it's a discreet yep. one way. It's beautiful. Yeah. And then you go down this cobblestone alleyway into a restaurant that's tucked away in a back alleyway where it, you can't really tell if you're in. Like if, you were to, if you were just to like wake up in this restaurant, you wouldn't know if you were in, you know, Copenhagen or France or New York or San Francisco, it's meant to kind of transport you to the restaurant. And like once you're when you're here, you're here. So it's less about the location and more about, you know, being inside the restaurant and being with us. It should kind of be, you know, take you away from your day to day. Like whether it's a casual fine dining setting like us or, you know, some weird modern avant-garde restaurant, it should be should be kind of transportive and almost put you into like this dream state where you can kind of just We'll, like forget everything in the real world and just kind of be right here and be present and kind of forget about everything else. What is the one of the latest ingredients or little ingredients that uh, you know that you are obsessed with or that you are experimenting with? There's a handful of uh, ingredients that I always kind of I always have in my my inventory. They're not to say they're the ones that I'm most comfortable with, but they're the ones that I like to kind of experiment with the most. But actually, right actually right now. We have like a really cool group of farmers that we get some stuff from. And most of it's like one or two things from these guys. We have a farmer, there's this guy Drew, and he's given me two ingredients that have kind of tried to find a way to get them 
on both savory and sweet dishes. Uh, he's got a, some property out in Culpeper, Virginia. He came in one day and just was trying to sell me on microgreens, and I told him I didn't use microgreens. And he's like, well, I got a bunch of other weird stuff. I was like, cool, I like weird stuff. So he told me that he had some birch trees on his property, and then he had pressed, he had, you know, tapped them and got, you know, 14 gallons of birch syrup. I was like, cool, I'll take all of it. He brought me the birch bark from those trees. So we have a dessert, we have a dessert on the menu right now that's, it's pretty much dedicated to him. It's his, his birch bark, we turn into ice cream, and then we use birch syrup to sweeten it. So that, that's one of the, the, like a dish that I'm like wildly obsessed with and trying to play around with it a little bit more. He also made us pine syrup. So he, you know, he, he brought me in a bunch of baby pine cones. And he made syrup out of that. And he also pressed it for me. So those are kind of fun, like finding ingredients that, you know, they're not, they're not new by any, by any means, but new for, new for us and just trying to do a new take on that. And then also with, um, similar farmers, like obviously we always, we have amazing animal proteins in this area, but we have a, that farmer who just brings us some really beautiful vegetables. So we have like these, the beautiful white cucumbers right now, kohlrabi. For the most part, like I will always have lamb on my menu. I'll always have some kind of beef and there was always be like a heavy seafood presence, but vegetables are also, and I think that's a lot of people will say like they, they want vegetables to kind of take the, take the lead in a lot of stuff that it, it is just as important as a piece of steak on a plate. But the, this, uh, this farmer, he sends us a new list every, every week. And I think those are the ingredients that we, that we really kind of strive to showcase now. Like, not vegetarian dishes, so to speak, but I guess dishes that highlight these really unique, beautiful vegetables. So you're talking about kohlrabi, and um, you know I've seen kohlrabi in a lot of uh, menus around the country. So uh, what seems to be a uh, you know trend in the past years? So what what are you making with uh, with kohlrabi? We actually just put it on the menu yesterday. We've we've had kohlrabi on menu in a couple of different forms, and I think the uh, the version that we're doing it, it just kind of, it kind of came together naturally, but. Again, this dish is kind of mostly the ingredients that this farmer gets us. So we take the, the kohlrabi, we scrub it, split it in half so it's open, and then we cook it in, we cook it sous vide in toasted hay, butter, and shiokoji, just till it's like, not cooked all the way through, but till it's a little bit more tender. And then we, uh, the side that we've cut after it's cooked, we put it into a, into a hot pan, sear it, and then we just slowly baste it for about 20 to 30 minutes with butter just to, get a little bit more flavors. It's kind of almost like you would with a piece of meat. You slice it and it's served with a with frothed hay butter. It's charred eggplant puree with sweet potato hoisin, currants, chanterelle mushrooms. A lot of basically we just take all these vegetables on this farm and we just char them over the fire and then serve that. So it's using the the kohlrabi gets cooked and then sliced just like you would like a piece of steak covered with all these all these beautiful ingredients and it's the texture that it gets from being cooked sous and also just like slowly based with the butter just it uh, permeates through and it's, I mean, it's a great vessel to carry flavor, but also just has such a great flavor on its own. It kind of came together yesterday. Like we had an idea for the dish and that we had all these vegetables that we got from our farmer. And I think that that might be one of my favorite preparations that we've done with kohlrabi in the past. A lot of the times we would serve it raw. That sounds delicious. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. I'll, I'll take it. I forgot to take a picture of it yesterday. So I'll take a picture today and I'll send it, I'll send it over <laughs> to you so you can see it. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. So I, I like to uh, pick the brain of uh, you know my guests, uh, thinking about uh, people that are listening and uh, and uh, that are really foodies and you know are doing their home you know cooking. And uh, of course, so we are in the summer, so burgers are you know pretty popular at the moment. 
So I'm curious, thinking about, uh, you know, your inspiration coming from your travel, you know, Japan, Denmark, Spain, uh, what would be your suggestion, you know, how people can, can prepare a burger at home, maybe with, you know, a twist that would come from either, you know, all those places that you've been to? So we actually, we have a burger on our menu, which is a lot of people look at what we do and they're like, why would you have a burger on your menu? And for me, it's not, it's about not alienating anybody and having food that just tastes delicious. but our burger kind of has some inspiration from from America, like classic America, but also a little bit of Japanese influence as well. So one of the things that we do, we, we do a, I love smash patty burgers. I like, I know a lot of people like to grill burgers. I like to do them in a pan because I, I love the crisp, which is like, man, that's like a very American style, like, you know, middle America, smash it in a pan, get it crispy and then soft cheese on it. What I, what I like to do to add, instead of just doing like a very, like, you know, adding like you know, lettuce, tomatoes. I don't do, I don't do lettuce and tomatoes on my burgers. We do stewed onions, but the thing that really kind of makes our, I think our burger pop is that we, our pickles are basically, it's like sozuke, so it's like the Japanese style pickled cucumbers. We bury cucumbers that we get from uh, one of our farmers. We salt cure them first, just for like 30 minutes, and then bury them in miso and uh, shiokoji and a little bit, a little bit of rice wine vinegar and sake, like mixed together like this really heavy paste. And we bury the cucumbers for about a week. They just naturally start to ferment. And then we rinse them and slice them and put them on our burger. So I think that's, that's always, I really like that because it's, it's uh, not like a vinegar acidity. It's just kind of the lactic, like the lactic fermentation. It's absolutely delicious. They're a little more rich. I think that's the one thing that kind of pulls together our burger. Like I don't, I think. Keeping it simple, like making sure you get really good beef. Do you put anything in the uh, in the in meat, you know, when you're doing your patty on another? Yeah, so we, uh, our burger looks very much like inspired by like a Big Mac. It's very simple, but it's, we use all ribeye. So we actually use the ribeye cap, which like deckle, it's like one of the, like the most prized pieces of meat. Uh, and we grind it into a burger, which some people might not, may not be happy that we do that, but I think it's like the best blend of like, uh, most mashed patties are very lean. But we like having something that's kind of nice and fat. So it's simple. Like we season ours with salt and pepper inside the grind. And that's it. I think a lot of people try to overcomplicate it and you end up covering it. But if you have really high quality beef, seasoning it appropriately and making sure you don't bury it in you know, sauces. We try to keep ours very, very clean and simple. But we, so we take onions, almost like you're making like a soubise and just cook it very low and slow, a little butter and salt. Our special sauce, which is also probably the other most important ingredient, it starts off with soft cooked eggs so we cook our eggs for six minutes and then we smoke them until they're bright yellow and we blend that and that's what we use to make our base of our sauce so that is i think that's one. Oh wow yeah so that's anytime you can add any kind of like smoke especially when you're doing a pan you're not grilling it sure so if you're if you have the time or you you have the ability to to smoke your egg before you make like a sauce so what kind of sauce do you make with uh with yes what do you add so it starts off with uh, with six eggs. We smoke, we cook them for six minutes, smoke them for about thirty minutes to an hour. It's a cold smoke, but we like it to kind of they're peeled, so the whites become like bright yellow. Then we blend that with cornichons, a really heavily garlic and cherry cherry mayonnaise, just a, a little bit of that to kind of bring it all together. A little smoked paprika, and then yellow mustard. So it's basically like our version of a uh, like special sauce, but. The, the thing that really kind of brings it together and gives it that really wonderful, like luscious texture and smoke are those eggs. If we didn't have that sauce, it, would, it wouldn't be as, the burger wouldn't be as great as it is. Oh, wow. 
Okay, great chef. I mean, that's it, it's it's great great idea. I um yeah, I'm going to try try this summer for sure. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Maybe not as much details as you you explain, sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but I'm going to try to uh, to leverage some of the ingredients and uh, the techniques that you mentioned. Fantastic. Before I uh, let you go, I always finish the uh, uh, the show with um, a series of rapid fire questions. You ready for them? <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Okay, so you and I, you know, are going on a, a flavors unknown tasting trek in in Washington D.C. So, w- which are the like the five places that you will take me to, and 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 Ravery could be one of them. But <laughs> well, I get that's a, that's an easy one. So I I won't say Ravery. That's <laughs> that's too much. I would say so for in no particular order and or reason. I would say two Amy's, Haleo, Mini Bar, because it's. I mean that's very unique. That's, that's true. We we didn't even talk about uh, Jose Andres and Minibar. I, I <laughs> know. <true. laughs> yeah, I mean he's that that was a, yeah we kind of not to say we jumped around that, but that was he's the I mean that was definitely like my stepping stone to get into Spain. But that's why those restaurants are so important to me. Like Haleo is just something I always crave, and the Minibar is like the truly a unique experience that is a lot of people will compare it to like El Bulli and everything else, but it is so unique to itself. So then outside of that, do you the, do you see him? By the way, do you see him? Uh, you see Chef Jose Andres still, um, you know, today because this guy is uh, is really busy. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> like he's, everywhere. He's he's busy. He's everywhere. But he he's got a restaurant right next door to me. So we and we still have a good relationship. Like good. If, if Jose definitely he's pushed me more in a sense of like understanding how to make a dream a reality. That makes. I mean, I know it's kind of a, a very blank statement, but he uh, mini bar is unlike you know most restaurants in the United States. It's like truly an experience. But it's open. It pays its bills. It's you can you can be a dreamer, and it's not just about having ideas. It's about being able to make those ideas happen, and that's definitely what I learned working for him. That's why his restaurants are important. So we have so we have uh, let's see, we have two Amy's, Haleo, Mini Bar, Sushi Taro, and Komi. Okay, can you give me three dishes that you could not live without cooking or eating? Ooh, yeah. Let's see. Without cooking or eating, steamed crabs. I'm from I'm from Maryland, and that's like a steamed crabs of the old day. That that is something like if I I would eat that for the rest of my life if I had to. Pizza, no particular pizza, my, but obviously like probably like two Amy's, but could not live without that. Let's see, that's a man. That's a hard one. I'm trying to like narrow it down so many different things. The seafood's like so important to like what I do, but yeah, we. So I what love, kind of seafood? Do you, what kind of seafood do you like? Live scallops. Uh, I love scallops, and we'll always have that on the menu. It's been on the menu since day one, and I will never take it off. And by the way, you went to um, to Spain, and you're talking about seafood. And you talk about the the Basque country. Have you tried when you were there the what they call the persebes? Yes, those little uh, seafood. I love, I love those. those too. You know, I've been I've been to Spain many times. So. Yeah, they're they're fantastic. They they have they have some actually grow domestically Pacific Northwest that they you can occasionally get over there. They're different. I mean, it's same idea, but they're not they're not as good as the ones you get in Spain. They're delicious. Okay, so scallops was um, you know okay. So your your third one. What is your favorite guilty pleasure food? Yeah, there's two. It's probably a Big Mac. I don't. I don't eat fast food at all. Okay. I I quit doing a lot of stuff. Like I don't drink. I don't smoke. And I don't eat McDonald's. But there's always that small desire just to go across the bridge to Virginia. It's right here. Across, and I can I can see it. I go get a Big Mac after work. <laughs> I and I, I always tell people because because everybody always asks me that. I'm like, well, if it brings you pleasure, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. But Going to going to get a Big Mac definitely would make, it would definitely wouldn't make me feel guilty if I, if I went after instead of running home to my wife and daughter I went like hey I want to go to McDonald's I'm like, 
I would, I would feel guilty <laughs> as a dad. Okay. What are the top three cookbooks that inspire you the most? Michelle Bra. There's actually probably two or two newer cookbooks. I feel like I always, it's like asking what my favorite bands are. They always change. But the WD50 cookbook, because my meal at WD50 when I was 21, like changed again, another moment in time that changed my life. And then Ronnie Emborg, the Wizards cookbook. He was at AOC in Copenhagen, and then now he's at Atera in New York. And his book is like the perfect, his stylistically, he's like the perfect blend of this new Spanish influence in New Nordic, and it's truly his food. And it was like one of the greatest dining experiences I've ever had. So those are my top three right now. It could probably, it will, it will probably change tomorrow. And uh, so the last one, what's uh, the favorite food place that uh, among all the places that, that you travel to? Probably the one that well, just standing out right now immediately is when I went to Skiji Market, I had a friend of mine who put me in touch with a tuna buyer and I was able to go onto the tuna floor. And then at like five o'clock in the morning, I went and had he took me to his favorite, the guy who like works at Skiji Market took me to his favorite sushi restaurant in the market. And it was like one of the, like, I, I ate there by myself. I just <laughs> I had like some of the most amazing fish that day at five o'clock in the morning. And it, that was like one of my, that's something I will, I will never forget that I was able to do that. That was, that was pretty amazing. So chef, thank you very much uh, for your time. I loved, uh, you know, to um, having you on, uh, you know, on the show. That's something that we have been talking about for, um, you know, several months. So I'm glad we did it. Thank you for, for your time again. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast Flavors Unknown. It was great to have Chef Johnny Sparrow as a guest. You can get the burger recipe as well as other references that the chef mentioned during the podcast on the website flavorsunknown.com. And then on the contact page on the same website, you can find a survey. It would be great if you could take it. It's anonymous. It takes only five minutes. There's only like six easy questions. It will help me to create a better content, you know, for the show. If you like the podcast, please share it with other foodies because I'm always welcoming new listeners to the show. My next guest will be Chef Kim Alter from Nightbird in San Francisco. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.